Let me ask you a question. Okay, shoot. How many people have you killed in your lifetime? Including the war? Uh-huh. You lose count. Out of all those times, what, what, what did it feel like? Feel like? Jesus, you're beginning to sound like the prison shrink they send in here twice a week. So it was, it was always just a job to you? Yeah. During the war, after, always a job. Never felt one way or the other about it. Just got good at it. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. I told you, I don't welch. Listen in as Garrett. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. Matt. I'm not so good today. And Adam. I wish I was out of this. Continue their reviews of the popular author's film adaptations by beginning their look at the film versions of Stephen King's Night Shift. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We gotta watch it. Listen in, as contained in this set are reviews of The Night Shift Collection. Don't do me any favors. And Stephen King's Cat's Eye. We're about to change your life. And keep coming back, as the boys will keep gradually going, one by one, through King's film adaptations in publication order. You've gotta believe me! All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Are we going to get down to it or not? The Boogeyman, released June 2nd, 2023. Budget on this was $35 million. Where the hell did that money go? Box office, $20 million. And this was directed by Rob Savage. Boys, I have to tell you, this was quite a cultivation for me. It's amazing that we have reached this point at this site. And what I mean by that is, yes, we started King over at the other place, but we continued it here. We started Night Shift here. We did the Night Shift collection here. You know, we still have quite a few more movies to go through when it comes to Night Shift. But I have to say, this was something we started here where we did that whole Night Shift collection. You guys were like, why do we have to do this? Well, we saw an iteration of this particular movie we're discussing today in that collection of stories. And we're seeing it in full length form here. And I got to say, it's pretty proud that we are cultivating that leg of Night Shift with a week of release review. And I cannot believe that they are still making Stephen King Night Shift movies in 2023. Pretty remarkable. Well, depends on your definition of remarkable. I'm not surprised that this got made because anything that studios can do to latch on to Stephen King, they will take. Because these are not even the table scraps. These are what you put out of the garbage as far as notoriety. To the point where the movies have to tell you, based on Stephen King, or from the mind of Stephen King, because this is expanding upon a short story, not adapting a novel. And it's not like this story is really well known. So I was curious how this was going to do. But as far as it being something that was coming out, you know, I've reached that fifth stage of acceptance where I'm like, all right, here, I just got to deal with it. Because when I heard that this was coming out, my initial thought was I'll believe it when I see it. Because this was canceled at one time, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. But look, I, I was not running, breaking my own legs from the speed it would take to run to my theater unless you said hey we got to review this this weekend and by the way you literally got back from this movie about two hours ago well by the time you're listening to this it's been about four hours we had another show 
Yeah, and ironically, that movie was also playing at the same time as I was. Yeah. And I really started to hate my life decisions, because if I had gone yesterday, being Saturday, I still could have seen Raiders on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Although it's not too late. If we get this done in the next hour and a half, I should be able to make it. All right. Adam Bunch, as my best friend, as the man we have brought along, or dragged along, mm-hmm. whatever your <laughs> thoughts on that are, you were set to watch The Boogeyman. What were you expecting going to see this? Were you expecting another version of what we reviewed a few months ago? I kind of was, but I thought this would be even less tied to that original story. I just had a feeling that it was name only. And the reason was is this wasn't really put out there much. It seemed like the dates hopped around a lot. It seemed that marketing didn't really exist unless you like horror movies and YouTube gives you a ad. And this wasn't even Stephen King's The Boogeyman. It wasn't even, like, The Boogeyman by Stephen King. Like, you know, it wasn't until, like, end of commercials that it was, like, based on a story by Stephen King. So this didn't even prey as much on his name as these movies normally do. I know that it was originally made just for a Hulu streaming movie. It's amazing that this got a theatrical release and prey did not. When you think about it, yeah. it was something else that we, we reviewed. But... We've discussed some other horror movies recently that were designed for streaming that got put out in theaters, and supposedly the test screenings were pushing it out, but maybe it was just Disney trying to hedge their bets with their Fox purchase and trying to earn some type of money, because that deal seems to have deflated that company's profit margins dramatically. But when it came down to it, looking at the cast I was and who it was, no names I recognized until I looked them up later, but zero expectations walking into this thing other than, I can't believe you're making me watch this <laughs> I tried to get out of this in every way possible, people. And instead, I was there 10 in the morning to watch this in my local AMC. Yeah, I went after work a few days ago at the time we recorded this. I had about a half dozen people in my theater. I was by myself. My friend decided to take the blue pill, and he decided to go see Spider-Man into the Burp-verse instead. So he wasn't going to go with me. I went by myself. I just sat at the place I normally sit with where the railing is because my legs are so long. I like to put my legs up on the railing. And that was my theatrical experience. Goudreau, as a person who saw it just today, how was your theatrical experience? Besides knowing that a movie you would have preferred to have seen was playing right next door. Well, I was by myself. In both instances. I went solo, and I was the sole soul in that movie theater. Oh, wow. I had the whole place to myself, so I sat there, I put my coffee down, I put my feet up on the chair in front of me, I kept my shoes on, everyone, so don't pester me about that, Pete, if you're listening. Uh, I'm not <laughs> one of those people. And I had my own private screening of a movie that I had no desire to watch. Really? Uh, so you, you weren't expecting anything here? Like, we've gotten some pretty decent horror films the last few years. You weren't expecting anything with this, huh? My expectations were on the floor. In fact, I think they were in the basement, much like the climax <laughs> of this movie, because I always get a bit perturbed when I see movies based on short stories that are 10 pages turned into 90-plus minute movies. Depending on the material, it could go a variety of ways. And for me, I didn't know this director from the back of my hand. I wasn't in love with the Dollar Baby version, although I thought it was the best of the three, for whatever that's worth. Go back and listen to that show. And the fact that this was going to be just dropped on Hulu didn't give me much sign, because they opted for, for a theatrical release. But I watched the trailer in preparation, and that didn't sway me over either. Because the one thing I'll say, we talked about Prey. There was also the Hellraiser reboot that mm. was a Hulu exclusive. And that looked considerably better from a budgetary standpoint, 
than this. Recently chose, this looked like something I would watch on television. It didn't seem like it warranted a theatrical experience. Yeah, Prey was the thing I thought of, too, because that was also dropped on Hulu. And the fact that a Predator movie was dropped on Hulu and this got a release. Well, we can thank one person for that, boys. We can thank our buddy Stephen King, because he saw a screening of this. Well, let's get to the making of this before I get to that. So basically, this thing was announced in June of 2018. And it had the writers of the A Quiet Place doing it, who have some pretty good pedigree. I still haven't seen A Quiet Place, but from what I hear, it's a really well-done horror film. Maybe I'll get to it one day. And it was directed by this guy who had done... The only thing I had seen of his is a terrible movie that I don't recommend anybody see called Dash Cam. It is one of the worst movies, horror movies I've ever seen. It's just awful. But he got the directing reins, and they started working on this thing, and then it was canceled in 2019 due to Disney purchasing Fox. This movie went by the wayside. However, it was revived in 2021. They had the rest of the cast signed in early 2022, and they had shot it, planned it for release on Hulu. Then they show the man himself... Stephen King. And the director was actually kind of funny in this interview I saw. He was expecting a whole Kubrick experience where he thought Stephen King was going to watch it and say, uh, I hate this movie. But King actually loved it to the point where he emailed everybody who made this film and said they would be fucking stupid to not put this out in theaters. So he kind of got the ball rolling on that. Savage pushed for it. And lo and behold, here we are. It is a theatrical experience, and we are watching The Boogeyman in theaters. It's only made $20 million on a $35 million budget. I think it might make its money back, but I don't know. Matt, is it safe to assume King's name doesn't really have as much push as it used to? I think it depends on what is being adapted. I mean, look, five years ago we had Stephen King's It come out, and it was like the highest grossing R-rated horror movie of all time. But also that story has a lot of name recognition and fondness because of the miniseries. This is something that is, for a lot of people, their first exposure to the source material, as far as an adaptation goes. But I also think King's, uh, I'm not going to say his Twitter has turned some people off, but I think we live in a world where people are more sensitive to the thoughts of others. Story of my life. And and I think Placement was also bad. Putting this out the same weekend as Spider-Verse was a terrible miscalculation. Oh my god, yeah. I was mad because I walked out of Spider-Verse and we reviewed the first one. I was like, yep, let's review this one. And then I realized, no, we got to wait for the Spider-Man retro. And I had to watch this bullshit instead. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> I call it the movie bullshit. I'm just saying, by comparison, I would rather... I feel like there's more to talk about with that movie than there is here. <laughs> when you walk into a movie theater and you're the one person not walking into a Spider-Verse screening, you stick out. <laughs> so the multiplex is set up where the biggest theater is the one smack dab in the middle. And all the screens keep going in terms of size. I was all the way down on the far right closest to the emergency exit doors. This movie came out on Friday and it is already really far down the line because I think every other theater was Spider-Verse. There's Book Club for the geriatric crowd (laughs) and there's Boogeyman for the people desperate to watch a horror movie that is not Evil Dead Rise because this is PG-13 and they can get into it. I actually saw the trailer for this when I saw Evil Dead Rise and I looked at my friend who was with me and he was like, that looks pretty good. I said, I thought it looked pretty good too. I gotta say, I had pretty high expectations going into this movie considering it had pretty decent buzz going in. I enjoy a couple members of the cast which we'll talk about. My expectations, not just because I'm the fan of King on this podcast, I thought we were going to get a pretty decent horror film, and let's talk about whether we do, shall we? So in the opening, we're hearing some roaring and some crying, and then we see some blood spurt on a picture as we get the title card, and so this is pretty much setting us up for 
what exactly? It set me up for a different movie because I was amazed they had the balls to kill off an infant or a toddler. I forgot this was PG-13 for a split second. To me, that was more upsetting than anything I saw in Evil Dead Rise. Yeah, it got me in the same way that the short film did. And the movie peaks here because this is the scariest scene in the movie. I was like, wow, this is the best adaptation ever. If they had cut right here, I'd say this is the best Stephen King movie ever because it's faithful to the source material, it's scary, and the supernatural is not explained at all. It just happened. (laughs) Adam, how would you feel about this opening? I was blown away, and I'll say, I'll give it credit. What it did is I suddenly remembered what that story was in the movie that we had discussed because I couldn't tell you what actually happened. I remember liking... I believe, liking Boogeyman most out of any of those that we discussed. But I could not remember what the heck it was. And here, just a few minutes in, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was about this and this and this and this and this. And so I'm like, okay, really curious to see what they pull off this way. Because, yeah, this was a heck of a beginning, and it wasn't until much later that I realized it was PG-13. Because it didn't feel like it. And I don't feel like a lot of this movie, well, maybe it feels like current horror PG-13, but I don't feel like it had a PG-13 mandate with what goes on. I'll agree with that. I don't think this feels like PG-13 either. And Matt, we've discussed PG-13 horror before. It can go off as really bad if it's obviously toned down for commercial purposes. I don't think this felt that way to me. I think the scares are just as effective. And please refresh my memory. Is A Quiet Place R or is that PG-13? I believe it's PG-13. Is it? Okay. A lot of times since I've seen it. I've only seen the first one. Mm. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's PG-13. Yeah. I've only seen the first one, but I've seen it a number of times. Yeah. So these guys are pretty good at these effective type scares. Well, I must say, I don't find a lot of the scares in this movie to be that effective outside of this opening. And and this is not me being a... I'm not Ray Parker Jr. I I ain't afraid of no ghosts, but... (laughs) (laughs) This movie's got one trick. It's the jump scare. And it's the kind of jump scare... I can't stand, which we'll talk about numerous times throughout this movie, but that's the one note they have outside of this prologue. Rob Savage has been adamant in interviews talking about how much he loves to jump scare. And he loved when he read the email from King who said that he jumped quite a few times while watching this movie. You're right. That is his go-to. I felt that was James Wan's go-to for a long time, too. No, it was. But James Wan in those, like I think in the Conjuring movies, the Insidious movies, there's a lot more buildup in those scenes. Like he lets it linger. In The Conjuring, he did a lot of really cool stuff with music accompanying those scenes. Not his soundtrack, but the compilations. There's a couple neat camera tricks Savage does in this movie, like where he inverts the camera when she's looking under the bed. There's some cool stuff that he does, but a lot of the big moments are just someone walking around, they look, nothing's there, and then five seconds later, the monster shows up, which, speaking of lack of creativity, when you see this monster, it's the same design, basically, as the monsters from A Quiet Place. And we're seeing another door close, this time to a closet, as someone walks in, and we're getting a lay of the land here. We're getting a huge look at this house that we're going to be spending a lot of time in, and this makes it feel different than the previous version of this story. Again, that story was about, I'd say about 10 pages long. I did not reread it for this podcast. I read it about three times for that previous show that we did. But we're getting a feeling right away that they're going to stretch this out, and I think at least setting it up pretty well. Yeah, I had a feeling that the house was going to matter. That's what these establishing shots made me feel. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we were going to just, and we do kind of, like I thought we were going to end the short story and then carry on from there. And guess what? That movie does that pretty Mm -hmm. much. But I thought it was going to be the horror trope of family moves into a house that has evil inside and go. Don't worry, though. Nevertheless, this movie still has dumb white people syndrome. Well, I will say this about the house. I like that 
for three people that live in this house, it feels enormous. The shots, the camera's far back enough to where you could see both sides of the wall. It makes the hallways feel really big. I never feel like there's a spatial deficiency. Like, everything feels like it's it's lived in. But it's also not, they're not living in Bruce Wayne's mansion either. We're seeing a patient in a shrink's office telling him that he's scared of being alone. And then the session ends, and then the shrink goes off, and he goes to pick up his kids from school. So we're learning that he, this guy is a working shrink, but he works from home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah home but, office. Rather than him making house calls, people call his house. Then we're seeing that this character of Sadie, she's not too keen on getting out of the car, and we, we realize that she's mourning somebody. Do we? Because she's got one note throughout this entire movie. I'm going to be angry. I hate this trope in, in movies where we don't know how to write sophisticated teenage kids, so we just got to make them mad throughout the entire movie. And we're also building a backstory here, too, with her friends and the way that her friends have changed. How many times have we seen this, too? What? We got the fucking Stephen King bully girl, the blonde. Yeah, I thought of that, too. Or yes. Or shit that no sane person would tell, even if you detest your friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuff that comes out of her mouth is so reprehensible and unrealistic. She was one switchblade away from being heavy balanced. <laughs> yeah, so as Matt mentioned, this girl, she goes to her locker. She's got lunch in there, and we're seeing her pick out the lunch. And, of course, here come people just put yogurt all over her. This is something that we'll see depicted again in Christine in just a year or so when we get to that story. Yeah, didn't we see this in Carrie, too? We saw bullies, but I don't think we saw this. I was trying to figure out what the heck this was that got spilled, because I couldn't tell what was in that bag, what somebody left for, and what it, I had no clue what this thing was that spilled. They made a big deal that it was her mom's dress, so they got a way of telling us that the mother is dying. We don't know much other than it was sudden, but not knowing that being part of the original story, I'm curious as to, is this that doctor? Because the kids are older than they would have been in that. So I'm I'm curious, and it's got me kind of pulled in here. Though I'll say, for horror teenagers, they're much closer to teenager-looking than we get a lot of the time. So we go back to the house with Chris Messina. We've seen this guy before, right, Matt? Or we haven't gotten yeah. to Man of Steel. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, he was Victor's ass and Birds of Prey. Victor's ass. No idea this yeah. was the same guy. Yep, no clue, same guy. He's a chameleon, man. This guy plays about 10,000 different kinds of roles. So he's home, and we're seeing a dude come in and says that he needs to talk to somebody because he doesn't know what he's going to do. So he barges his way in, and this ends up being the guy that we learn about in the previous version of this story, Lester Billings. So it is a call. It is a callback to that story. And as soon as he said his name was Lester Billings, everything just kind of came flowing back. It did for me. Like, I kind of perked up. I'm like, wait a minute. I remember that name. <laughs> like, And I'm like, okay, this is that. But I'm trying to th- think about, like, is this the end of that story? I'm understanding at least who that character is, and I kind of know what's going to go on. But I also have a feeling he's not going to stick around. The reason is I recognize Dave DeSmalchin. You know, he's he's... I don't know if having a renaissance is the right word, but he's having a moment in a lot of these kind of things. But him not being featured in the marketing or anything else lets me know that he's not here to stick around either. If David Dismalchin shut up at my door, I would be very skeptical as well. Uh, (laughs) Because all he does is play either crazy people or out-and-out psychopaths. The Dark Knight, the Harkonnen, Mind Reader, and Dune. Dune, yeah. I just saw him, and he's Polka Dot Man. Yeah, so he's the right kind of off-putting to make you 
in the perspective of the psychiatrist, be skeptical of what he's telling you, but he also doesn't play it too crazy, which is what I like. He's not yelling like, you got to believe me, or this thing's after me. It's like he's still in that grief process, but also he's not distanced enough to where if you're the psychiatrist, you could still think, oh, he killed his family. Yeah, I do think it's a possibility. And I'm wondering at this point whose story we're going to follow. But I do think that this is a broken guy that either could be traumatized by the deaths or could have murdered them. And I do think the short movie we saw before that kind of lets you go either way. I think that that actually resonates with his characterization of it here. That's a great point, Adam. I didn't even think about it. But the fact that we're seeing this guy walk in, and this was the centerpiece of that dollar baby that we watched, but obviously we're three of maybe 200 people who have seen that actual dollar (laughs) baby. But the fact that he's coming in and this is the guy we followed last time, I'm thinking maybe he's the main character and we're just going to brush away from this family. But no, he's here just to talk about the fact that he had three kids. All three of them are dead. He did not kill them. He swears he didn't kill them. One of them died of SIDS, and then the other two ended up dying later. And it's a pretty harrowing story, and I didn't realize that this would actually be the centerpiece. I thought he would leave and never come back. Well, we're going to see at least this family come back. It's kind of weird that this is how this story is interwoven. It is, and it's. I think they at least found a way to take a very short story and say, let's expand it, let's do more if I was to take a novella and make it more fleshed out. So in that realm, I'm going to say, good job of taking something short if you were going to adapt it. It's a, good, it's a choice. I'm not going to say if it's good or bad now, but hey, you found a choice and a way to do it. It definitely was a good guessing game, and I was wondering if this was... The big twist was that the father was the boogeyman all along, because I remembered that from the story. The big twist is the psychiatrist is the boogeyman. I was questioning it, but dumb white people syndrome kicks in. He leaves the possible murderer in his home by himself. God. Hey, I'm going to go call somebody. No, it's okay. Yes, I believe you. Anyone, any therapist worth their salt in their home is going to have a panic button anyway, you know, under their desk. But also, if you're going to talk that loudly just in the other room, you're lucky mm. this guy's not going to shiv you. Yeah, he's, I thought maybe he would attack him at this point, but he ends up hanging himself. Or does um, he? Or does he? Well, let's be honest. There are parts of this movie where I could see scenes that were cut. Because I agree with that. Sometimes yeah. shit just happens that makes no logical sense and is never set up. Or paid off, for that matter, because this, it's left ambiguous. I'm fine with that, because you're still questioning if the monster, if he was actually involved or if he was just crazy. But there comes a point where the movie stops playing around with ambiguity. Yeah. And it retroactively makes this worse. I gotta say, I do like the way this scene, with the exception of the dumb white people syndrome, as Matt points out, I do like how this is paid off, because it, I gotta say, it is a shock when we find out, oh shit, he's hanging himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do too, and at least at least here, they're trying to keep that guessing game of what happened and who did it. I don't think that they keep up the who did it, as Matt said, like, I think that should be what's going on here, but at least initially, it's just kind of a, oh, Dan did not see it coming. The doctor's telling the police about what happened and talking about the monster that he mentioned. And then we're going back to this girl at the school. I mean, do we have to have this wraparound story of this school and these bullies and everything else that's going on here? No. And you could have got it down to an hour 35 instead of an hour 45, 47 if you cut some more out. Because we never see the youngest daughter go to school. No, that was weird. Yeah, I I I thought about that. Yeah, I definitely think that some other stuff was written in film to Matt's point I think there's some weird cuts and maybe to be smart I do not want a two hour version of this but I think there's some different choices that they made that they edited around to do what they did 
How do we feel about the two main girl actresses here, boys? I think the little girl is pretty good. I think the older one is okay. Matt, you and I, we watched Evil Dead Rise a couple months ago and just to preview if we ever watch that movie, I think those kids come off pretty well. I don't know if these kids come off as well. No, they don't, but I, I can't blame them because I don't think this script gives them anything really juicy to do. And I think after a point, the youngest daughter is only here to be threatened by the boogeyman. She has no other character. Whereas they front load the oldest daughter exponentially more. And it makes her the main character, but at the expense of the father, who I think is in a more interesting place than she is. David Cage needs to stop with these fucking precocious kids. Well, let's be honest. This was not in the story. This was all put on by the writers. I'll blame these two bastards then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't find any of these characters interesting. And there's only three of them, which makes it even worse. You gotta give me someone to latch on to. The father is in the background. The youngest daughter is only here to be threatened. And the oldest daughter is just... The movie's trying to make a point about the grieving process and how it affects different people, but only when it remembers it's trying to do that, which leads me to believe that there are either entire scenes missing or the mom dying was actually going to be shown because they just mentioned a car accident. That's all they say. I'm convinced there was a flashback because we don't see the mom ever interacting with the oldest daughter outside of that camcorder footage when she was a baby. Mm -hmm. So you got to make that a huge point. you got to give me more background for their relationship. Yeah, I think there was something to be said with the dad there as well, because like four times he mentioned, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I was nowhere near. So I was waiting for a reveal that he was somewhere near that accident and he was hiding from it. Those lines felt out of place when they were bringing it up. I do like that it was Sadie who spotted the body. thought that was a nice test because she's already grieving her mother. Now she's seeing this, and my God, this poor chick's not... She's not going to have a, a, a normal life her entire life. I'm going to say, I like both kids in this movie. I like Sophie Thatcher. I thought it was great the first time that I watched EDA and Emma Stone. Uh-huh. And so that's exactly who I'm getting out of this. I feel like freaking she's doing Emma Stone. It's amazing because the little girl was, as Matt said, Princess Leia in the absolutely abysmal Obi-Wan series, and this older daughter, played by Sophie Thatcher, she was actually in the Book of Boba Fett, the worst Star Wars show out. I think she's good enough in this, but I think she's going to do some things. I think she's going to break. Maybe it's because I got a 15-year-old daughter that I see a lot of what's going on here, and I'm like, damn, I really should have brought Addison with me to see this. I regret that I didn't, because I think she would have enjoyed it. I know she's on that show Yellow Jackets, which I guess is a major hit. I don't know. That's what people tell me. I've never seen it, nor do I know anybody that watches it. But I think she does a pretty dang good job. And I think the little girl, for not doing much other than carry around a glowing moon, I think she's effective in at least giving us the shadows that we need. And for the record, that's no moon. That's a space station. (laughs) (laughs) That was last month, Matt. I'm with Adam on this. I like both girls, too. Not as much as I did the family in the Evil Dead film from earlier this year, but I do think that there is a lot to like about these two. And Matt, we've been bombarded by this with especially A24 movies where, and I think we talked about it when we were on the Horror Returns podcast, where are we done with the fact that grief leads to horror? Yeah, I feel like there is no more you can do with this setup. So we're seeing Sadie. She notices a mold beginning to form around the house while Sawyer, she's noticing this strange creature hiding under her bed. 
This was a nice series of shots. I did like the way this is set up. Even though I didn't like this director's previous film, I'm liking the way he's at least setting these shots up. So I like how he inverted the camera when she was looking under the bed. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. I thought that was really cool, but I think this whole movie is bringing nothing new to the table. And that's my biggest indictment against it. For something that is so universal, the monster in your closet, not really a whole lot interesting they do with that. And it doesn't help that, unlike most Stephen King things, the Boogeyman is not explained whatsoever in this movie. <laughs> it's like the Boogeyman said, keep my name out of your mouth. <laughs> and every time he's mentioned, he's like, well, I guess I got to come and fuck with your life. Wait a second here. You reviewed Smile last year on the Facebook page, and you mentioned that you don't like when things are over-explained. So now you want this thing explained? No, I'm just saying that I let. it's funny that Stephen King always over-explains the supernatural. Gotcha. Uh, and here, there, there is no explanation. I'm not saying that I wanted the backstory, but there's stuff that happens later on that <laughs> I don't know if, if it's a dream or he possessed somebody. Stuff just happens to where I feel like the rules keep changing. So Sadie, she doesn't believe Sawyer when she tells her that she has a creature in her closet. We then see that the girls are at their therapist's house, Dr. Weller, and they're talking about their mother's death. And Weller uses a flashing light to help Sawyer get over her fear of the dark. To but, scare the hell out of the child by being a creepy-looking person itself and then shining a red light on you to scare the bejesus out of this child. I, I thought she was going to be the boogeyman. I thought I that, did, too. I did too. Yeah. Do the twist right here, especially because the movie teases you with that at the end, too. Yeah. Like, she is... Cre- I mean, the way that they shoot her when that light is flashing is horrific. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she turns off the lights and just terrifying the hell out of this poor little girl. <laughs> like, how is this going to help you get over your fears? I'll say that some of these shots, some of the colors, some of the shots, some of the camera work, I really liked when I saw them in Malignant last year or two years ago. My God, right. <laughs> yes. But when you're doing a creature feature, how many ways can you show a creature? Yeah, I mean, no, it, you're, yeah, you're everything's right. going to be reminiscent of, it, of something else. If this, I hate when, if you're going to show me that in the trailer, you need to give me something more than the trailer shot. Fair. And the bobble going under the bed and the flip of the camera was so heavy in this trailer that when it happened, I didn't get the ooh-ah because I'd seen it so many times already. So Sawyer ends up wetting herself when she sees the creature. In the house, the creature continues to stalk, and Sadie finally gets a glimpse of it and begins to suspect that this is all related to Lester's suicide from earlier in the I like how this is how Sadie's brought in. First, she wasn't on her sister's side, but we get glimpses of the creature. And I do think, I mean, we've seen this in so many horror films, but the less you see, the better. I think the more they keep it in the shadows, I think the more effective this movie is. I do like the little tiny glimpses we're getting. Yeah, I like when it's minimal lighting on the boogeyman because this movie reminds me a lot of when it comes to that Jeepers Creepers. For the first half of that movie, it's pretty scary. And the minute you see the creeper in the headlights, you're like, they're shooting Buffy the Vampire Slayer that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and here, I like when you just see the eyes or you can kind of make out what the mouth looks like. I mean, speaking of prey, fucking predators should sue for copyright infringement with the mimicking voices. And then when you see what the monster looks like, I'm like, it looks like a cross between the Quiet Place monsters and the Cloverfield monster. I thought of Cloverfield when we saw it. I went with the most recent Blair Witch iteration. Blair Witch, the updated, uh, was it 2019? Mm-hmm. 2016. 2016, yeah. Was it that long ago? Yeah, yeah. Oh, damn. 
before the dark times. <laughs> <laughs> now, Adam's kind of said his piece on it, although you really haven't. How do you feel about this rolling ball that's actually a light, Adam? It, okay, practically, it annoys me because it's the most convenient freaking thing ever, you know, in the way of shooting a horror movie. But when I'm in the theater and... I know that there's something around the edges, around the corner, kind of like that horror in the corner of your eyes you can't quite see. I like it for that reason. But a little sphere of light, I don't know, there's a book series I read that talks about creatures that can create these little balls of light. So I like it. (laughs) I like as a kid that she has it. However, if I'm carrying it around, I'm not going to roll it down a hallway so that it disappears. I'm going to keep that son of a bitch with me. You know, or grab a frickin' flashlight. But I do think it's effective in trying to get the jump scares specifically out of you in this film. I think it works that way. All right. Well, I gotta, I gotta point out my favorite nitpick in this movie because every time I thought of this, I'm glad I was by myself because I burst out laughing. <laughs> Nobody knows how light switches work in this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these characters keep walking by light, uh, light switches and keep walking by lamps. Yeah. Where they could illuminate the house, and they never do it. They walk in the dark or use the smallest light. Like at least if the, if the teenager pulled out her iPhone and turned on the flashlight, I'd give her a little bit more credit. But nobody turns on a single fucking light in this movie. I guess they don't pay National Grid and they shut off their electricity at night. Or the few times you see them flip it and it doesn't go on, they go down into the dark room anyway. <laughs> <laughs> What do you guys think of the way we see this creature revealed? Because what what happens is Sadie looks inside Sawyer's mouth and she sees that her tooth is actually hurting. So she puts the, she does what my dad used to do, which is attach the string to the door and she's getting ready to open it and then it just gets burst wide open and here comes the tooth. And that's how we see this creature revealed. It's That was different to me. I dug it pulling on the tooth in there. but I did too. I, yeah. But I think the Tooth Fairy is a horror movie that's been done as well. Oh, yeah. That, it was called Darkness Falls, and it blew. Oh, it was terrible. But that string, you know, the door closing, I don't know how and why it needed to bring the tooth up the door because there's a giant gap at the bottom where the rope was. Little things. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> um, But I think in a way to terrify a child, and I mean, it's the monster in the closet, and I think it works well enough for what this is. I'm not looking for something elevated. I don't think this is going to be this major franchise, but it's working better than I expected it to going in. Not for me. I found a lot of this to be really trite. And my standards are, I don't want to say high with horror, but I like all kinds. And so much of this movie, for something that was 90 minutes, I felt like I was in that theater for considerably longer. It's a good thing I brought coffee with me, because I honestly, there was a part in this movie where I dozed off for a minute. And it's coming up. So we're seeing Sadie. She's listening to a recording of Lester's appointment and reads up about the Billings family. She finds their address. So Sadie has her supposed best friend drive her out to the Billings, a seemingly abandoned house. She does not go in the house with her. She just leaves her. She leaves her. Yeah. (laughs) That's some friend. She tells her to stay in the car. Oh, it gets cover in about two minutes. Oh, my God. So... (laughs) Inside the house, she discovers Rita, Lester's estranged wife who lives in this house. Matt, didn't we see this character as Sarah Connor in that Terminator movie from a few years ago? <laughs> Isn't this, okay, this is the same house. Yes. That, because it's the house we see in the, because they try to do, you know, make it look like the freaking Kruger house by mm-hmm. panning in and out of it. So this is that house. So she just stayed there. Yeah, and she was she apparently did not mourn her husband or her kids whatsoever and just went crazy. This, 
I, there has to be stuff missing because this is not set up whatsoever. They, they never mention a wife. You see her in pictures. But I thought the impression was that the boogeyman also killed her. I did, too, up until this point. That, I think, is in the short story. Like, his wife dies, too. Like, he's left alone. But now we have fucking Sarah Connor mixed with Kevin McAllister because she sets up a fucking Home Alone <laughs> slash Skyfall climax with his fucking shotgun shell and the blow. This subplot was so stupid. It was. I'll go with you on that. And before we hit record on this particular podcast, we recorded a podcast where we, we talk about exposition done right with Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is not how exposition is done. This is how Sadie finds out who the boogeyman is. And this is where we hear the name for the first time. This is just, like you said, Matt, it's very trite. We're having this woman who supposedly knows everything about this creature that we've only seen glimpses of. Yep, she's, and she knows that it feeds off fear. Yes, and yes. About, and... I'm sorry, with all those candles, her house should have been burned to smithereens. Her house should have looked like the climax of this movie. All those open flames, all it takes is for one to ignite the bottom of the wax, and that house goes up faster than, you know, modern housing prices. You know what's easier than lighting a hundred candles for light? A light bulb. The boogeyman feeds on on natural electricity. (laughs) And then we have this... they, They foreshadow that stupid thing about the lighter. With, oh, oh yeah. It, they, they, the they, second I see that lighter, I know what's going to happen. Uh-huh. She talks about using natural lighting because that's what cavemen use. Because the cavemen didn't live in houses, the boogeyman can reach them. None of this shit makes any sense. Makes any sense. There's no eternal logic in this movie at all. And it's one of the things that drove me crazy. Look, I think all three of us have experienced the death of a parent. I know the grief that comes with that. I know how weak you are when it comes to times like that. But the fact that this chick picks up this lighter and is like, if you go to the left, that means you're here. And the fact that we were foreshadowing what happens later, it's just so stupid to me. This looks like something we talked about Night Shift and we talked about King's original versions of these stories. We also talked about The Shining and how The Shining, the book, was much different than The Shining, the miniseries, because he had to make the ending of that so fucking cheesy and so dumb. And that's what this kind of feels like, because we know what's coming up. Oh, yeah. A hallmark of Stephen King is a schmaltzy supernatural component that helps save the day. And, again, it's it's not made better by the fact that it's addressed. This would hit so much harder if we knew the extent of their relationship. We have to take it strictly at face value. And with what they're giving me, I need more to go off. And the minute I saw that lighter, I was thinking of uh, of the bat in signs. Oh where my god! Oh, use this to beat Swing the away! <laughs> it, it's fucking that. And I mean, yeah. look, later on, there's a shot in this movie where I'm glad I was by myself because I burst out laughing. Another one? <laughs> yeah. When she throws the lighter at the end in slow motion, I, yeah. I clap my hands and I sort of. Turned to my side and just couldn't contain myself. I was laughing so fucking hard. So as Matt said, we're learning that this creature feeds off fear. It also feeds off mourning. And the fact that you can't talk about your dead relatives makes it stronger. And all these things that we've seen A24 do about 25 times. Yeah, I think they made the 24 in A24 stands for the amount of movies that handled that. Exactly. We also learned that the only solution to ward off the boogeyman is light. But this is when Rita spots the boogeyman right behind Sadie and shoots at it. And this is when Sadie just flees the house. Like, later, Gator. I'm out of (laughs) here. Yeah, she pulls an Eric Cartman. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Exactly. (laughs) But I'm going to leave my cell phone number in case you want to call me. (laughs) (laughs) We're seeing that the mold has continued to spread across the house. That night, Sadie has a nightmare about the boogeyman putting something inside her throat. I gotta say, this was kind of effective to me. I wasn't thinking this was a nightmare. I thought this was a pretty nicely set up scare. 
it, oh God, I was trying to think of what freaking it was. Ah, oh, what movie was it where somebody pulls the giant? It was The Ring. Oh, oh yeah, well, Rings. Rings, oh, where I, she pulls the giant, like, hair, like, yeah. out of her throat mm-hmm. was exactly what I thought of. But it was, I say, it got me. I, I did have a chuckle when, and, you know, all the friends get together for a giant party and they're just sitting around on their phones. I got a teenager, so it did. It made me laugh. I thought it was a creepy, effective, but i still not understanding the rules. And I kind of like that I don't understand the rules and I don't follow everything. But, yeah, her pulling that out was, got to say, creepy as hell. Oh, when, when she pulls it out later on, I thought that was gross. But I was confused by how exactly that happened because there's a part where... She wakes up from a, a nightmare, but then it turns out the nightmare actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so suddenly they're using dream uh, nightmare on Elm Street logic, and, and it's not consistent. That's the only part where that happened. Her dad uh, is doctor. Or he's doctor sleep. Yeah, and again, I fucking burst oh, out geez. laughing when she says, "There's no such thing as monsters." She break the boogeyman breaks down the door like the coolie man. Uh, that was awesome. She, break, she wakes up. <laughs> I got more last out of this movie than I expected. I think I got more last out of it than I did legitimate scares. Sadie tries convincing her dad to not clear out the art cabinet. Meanwhile, in the basement, Sadie seemingly encounters the spirit of her mother, directing the flame of an old lighter. Cheesy as fuck. Yeah, I need to shoot myself with insulin to get out of the schmaltzy, sugar-infested coma. And let's make sure that we keep showing this acetone that's flammable here in the basement mm-hmm. for the lighter. Yes. You might as well have just written, guess how this will end, in big bold letters up on the screen. Yeah, and she's in a dark basement. The boogeyman doesn't make a move on her at all. She sits in there for a long time. And, and there's still power. Turn the basement stairway light on. <laughs> it's amazing that, yeah, there's not power to lights until we do turn on lights. Like, sometimes they don't work, sometimes they do, but it's just, oh, never mind, that light doesn't work. I'm going to turn on this one over here instead. And they go back to that same trope of that ball of light. It's effective one time, maybe even twice, but they use it at least four times in this movie. At school... Bethany comforts Sadie and decides to organize a girls' night at Sadie's house to cheer her up. Things that I'm sure Adam has organized a lot with having a teenage girl. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So they're starting to do crazy things like smoking as Sadie coughs up the tooth that Sawyer had pulled out earlier. This was, I gotta say it was unexpected, but Adam, you made a great point earlier where you're saying, all right, we've seen some attempted scares here. Matt is going for laughs, but we're trying to scare, but we haven't set any rules up. Where are the fucking rules? Yeah, that's the thing is, yeah, I'll go with you. I will go with you on the ride, but you need to set up your universe, and I don't think they've done that yet. Or I think the universe they set up got chopped to hell in editing. I think it's that. And also, this script was rewritten once they rebooted, once they resumed production, because all these disparate elements, like the dismulsion part, the mob living in the attic, like these feel like they're all from separate movies. Teenage girls do what teenage girls do. They lock Sadie in the art closet where the boogeyman encounters her. The dad's not hearing any of this. And the sister's not hearing any of this either. This goes on for about three minutes before they run past her dad and her dad's like, what's going on? Are you serious? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you invite the person over you know is a bitch? There's one that's just the spearheaded evil Matt pointed out earlier. Straight out of Mean Girls. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that one even coming along for the ride? It just... Yeah, yeah. Stephen bullies. Yep. So the little girl isn't hearing... Speaking of Sawyer, she isn't hearing any of this because she's busy playing video games. (laughs) In a pitch black room with nothing but the TV on. And what happens to her? She gets thrown into into the TV. (laughs) Speaking of laughter... I laughed at this too. 
I almost had a hernia. I was laughing so hard because I thought of, and this is a terrible comparison, but if you saw the Poltergeist remake, which I don't endorse, the part where the girl is like, Mom, something's in my room, and then she gets dragged up the stage. I guess watching people be thrown, like young kids be thrown across the room makes me laugh uncontrollably. But that that was a nice TV, and that was the death that affected me the most. I'm like, oh, that TV probably cost more than the PlayStation did. As a father, sir, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I liked that Sadie was using a feature of the video game to get an extra flash of light while she was looking around the room. I thought that was cool, too. I I thought that was a cool, effective little way that she's firing this arrow. And as we get little, it's like the Weeping Angels in Doctor Who. You know, you get these little flashes of light, and it's suddenly a little closer, a little closer. But I was feeling for, like, the first half of the movie that they kept changing the look of the Boogeyman. And I liked that idea until I realized that they were just showing it differently. But when I was thinking that every time we saw it, it looked different, I was digging it. Rita comes back. She contacts Sadie, and she says that she believes she has come up with a way to kill the boogeyman. So Sadie goes to the house where Rita ties her up and sets up a trap with her. Why is this? Like, this is where people don't act rationally, where all Rita has to do is explain what my plan is, not catch you off guard like that. So stupid. Yeah, which she wants this thing dead. She's already been here. Like, she would... Do what she needed to do to get this monster. The boogeyman appears and sets off the trap <laughs> that Rita has set up in this house, as Matt brilliantly pointed out, very Kevin McAllister-like. <laughs> and I thought of Nancy, too, from Nightmare on Elm Street, when she set up her house as well. It's just like Jamie Lee Curtis at the end of freaking Halloween. Yeah. All these go off. The thing gets shot by, like, 20 freaking shotgun shells. We see that it gets hit. So if it can die or not die, should be established right here. But on top of it, my only thought is, okay, she's going to be deaf for the entire rest of this film. <laughs> she's just surrounded yeah. by this yeah. 360 of shotgun shells. And no ear protection. Speaking of Predator, <laughs> they almost save verbatim if it bleeds, we can kill it. <laughs> yes. Which is after they mention that it can mimic and we hear it mimic words. Mm-hmm. It's kind of got like a Predator mandible-style mouth. Yeah. Are we sure this wasn't <laughs> the prey? You know what, 20th Century Fox, this was, this was what they discarded. That they are known for recycling things. You might be onto something. <laughs> the boogeyman survives the attack and actually ends up killing Rita. Sadie escapes and flees the house again. Meanwhile, the dad of the year calls her and asks her where she is. <laughs> Sadie realizes that they're already back home. The boogeyman is attacking Will and Sawyer, dragging them around the house. <laughs> Wow. And again, we're still not getting a good look at him. No, we're not. And I'm liking that part of it that way. Mm-hmm. I feel like, let's say, I've said it once again, but there's in the recent Blair Witch where you kind of see it and you see these elongated limbs and it's kind of Slender Man and kind of a spider. You kind of see it, but not really. So another one of my problems is that the movie sets up the Boogeyman as sort of this J-horror inspired monster where you can like pass yeah. it off to other people. Mm-hmm. But Instead, it comes off, by this point, like, as long as you have a closet in your house, the boogeyman can find you. Again, there's no clear definition as far as how it operates. Yeah, I was thinking, when Lester dies there, initially I got the feel. See, this thing had to have been written a good five, six. Like, there's ideas that just so mixed up. Is It made me feel like it follows. That he, by dying there, let the boogeyman into that house. And there's an idea there, but it just doesn't make sense. You're right. Yeah, because I thought that's what the mold on the house was representing. Yeah. That's what it felt like, and it was spreading and going from, yeah. But I, I guess that's not, like, I don't I don't know how the fuck this thing operates. Nobody do does. But he does. Like, including, including, the, including the author. 
Boogie Man from 2005 had more defined rules than this does. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't bring That movie blows. That movie's awful. You know, compliment alert. I'm going to say when this creature has Sadie down and it's getting ready to... I don't know if it's getting ready to suck the life out of her or what it's doing. I kind of like the way these three strings or whatever they are are coming down. And that that was kind of creepy to me. I kind of dug the way this was going. Now, when we get the wide shot of what it's doing, it looks like Brundlefly. You know? (laughs) Oh, wow, yes. But yeah, it reaches down and they're like little tendrils. Yeah. But then they turn... But then they... To me, what I saw, they turned into hands. They were caressing her face. Mm -hmm. And then... We don't get a good glimpse, but when part of its neck or head or whatever was opened up, I thought it was trying to show us her mother so that she stopped fighting or that, but I couldn't tell what it was revealing to her. Yeah, it's like there was a face inside the face. Yeah. I get making a film dark to set the mood and have the atmosphere and everything else, but this movie's too dark to me. It, we're having the same fucking argument that we had when we did Aliens vs. Predator Requiem, where it's like, God damn, turn on some fucking lights, will you? <laughs> yeah, and parts of this writing, like everything with the girls feels like the OC, much like AVP Requiem did. Yeah. I also thought of, this is basically the ending of Smile. We got a burning mm-hmm. house. We, we get the monster that. that falls in her mouth. Clearly, there's studio groupthink, even though this, uh, I want to say, uh, Smile is universal. Boogeyman is, well, now Disney. Disney Fox, yeah. So the creature ends up taking Will into the basement. The sisters go in and they find the creature feeding off Will. They rescue their father. A chase ensues through the basement. And this is the final leg of this film. And we're finally getting good glimpses of this creature. Now, Matt, you've already said your piece on it. Adam, how do you think the creature looks here? I dig it, but once Matt said that it looked like the creature from A Quiet Place, I definitely see those that part in it, especially the limbs. But I like that it's not completely a creature that we've seen before. I think it's hard to do an original design. I need less. I don't have a problem with the lighting. I was actually okay with what I saw. I think it was better than most, even though a lot of it is candlelit. But I kind of dug the creature. I think it was pretty horrifying, Could have been, you know, especially for the type of movie you're walking into. I'm expecting a low-budget streaming horror movie, and I think that the visuals and the creature design I'm getting is better than I expected. With the exception of Brundlefly, as I already mentioned, and a little bit of Cloverfield, (laughs) I thought this creature looked pretty good. I'm with you on that. I think they did a good job with the practicals here. There is a lot of CGI, but I don't know. For the guy who did dash cam, I was expecting worse. Matt, you're still laughing at this point? Uh, Laughing, no. I was bored. This is where I did watch. At the climax, you dozed off? <laughs> yeah, because I, I wasn't invested anymore. And I knew the fucking later was going to come into play. Well, let's get to that. So Sawyer's distracting the creature, and Sadie has her mother spirit at her side, so she manages to set the creature on fire, seemingly killing it and destroying all the mold around the house. Which um, light up like the sticks at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Each of these little tendrils kind of light up themselves, which... There is something there, and that said, about spreading the evil and spreading that throughout the houses. And it's it's missing here, because at the end it focuses on each of those little tendrils of mold or evil getting lit up. Matt, you weren't with this climax at all, huh? No, because every time I saw the mold, I thought of the fucking slime from Ghostbusters 2. All the negative energy is, that's what the boogeyman feeds off of. Thank God he picked a decent house, because if he went to, like, Detroit, there wouldn't be a whole lot of real estate to work off of. We cut to the family having a group session with the doctor from earlier, having moved on from their experience. So now they're finally getting their grief out there. So they're seemingly protected. But as they leave, Sadie is called back to the office by Weller, only to discover that she isn't there and the closet door is open. But 
This is just to throw us off as Weathers appears right behind her, questions Sadie, who looks at her suspiciously and shuts the door. I thought that was a perfect way to end this movie. The movie was sold on the thing that comes out of the closet. I thought the fact that it ends with a door closing was enough of a good metaphor for me. It worked. I was not surprised that they would find a way to keep this open-ended in case it hit. I think it's doing better than it expected, so I wasn't surprised to leave it a little more open-ended that way. Yeah, I mean, it's still the monster in the closet. We, we got away from that after the beginning of the movie. We at least closed back on that monster in the closet. Yep, it's open-ended for Boogeyman 2 Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) (laughs) And then the credits roll on the Boogeyman. Terrible terrible song choice, by the way. Oh, I agree with you there. Oh, yeah. Using Burning Walls. Oh, my God. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. All right. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give the Boogeyman? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. You know, it's amazing that I found a reason, reason be my cohort, to spend $30 to go see this in a movie theater. Because $30. I don't, see, I don't see any movie without a large popcorn and icy. <laughs> That's your problem. <laughs> my, ticket was, my ticket was 13 and that was freaking matinee. Jeez. I had very low expectations for this movie, knowing the source material. It was my favorite of that collection when we had watched it, discussed it before, go back and listen to that podcast. It's pretty animated. So I thought that there was potential here to do something with it. And they do something. And I do think they expand on the myth, the story. But as we pointed out, it's pretty sloppily done that way. I think there's a lot of story choices that are rewritten, edited out, cut. And that's unfortunate because I think there's a decent movie, quote unquote, to be had here somewhere. The problem is we've had some pretty good horror movies the last few years. I think there's a reason this thing got dropped in June against is counter-programming to Spider-Verse, because I think if you put this out in October, it would get railroaded by everything else coming out around that time. But I was more engaged than I thought I would be. I thought the performances were decent enough. I just don't think it kept the suspense over what the Boogeyman was and that whole trope of, is it the father, is it not? For some reason, they just didn't have the balls to explore and to even run the risk that this father might be an evil person. And I think that could have made this a hell of a lot better. But, you know, an hour and 40 minutes, I was surprised that it kept me hooked as much as it did, even though some of the outlandishness, as Matt said, is laugh-inducing. I mean, there's times where it's worth laughing at this movie, and I did as well. But all in all, I did not hate my experience, which is what a lot of you listeners are used to me saying when I get done with this King movie. And this kind of reinforced the fact that I need to pick up Night Shift and have it in my bag at work so that I read it as I go through things. So if you want something different, if you want some counter-programming, I think it would be worth a watch, at least on streaming. If not, if you can get a matinee, lucky, go give it a shot. It ain't great, but I don't think it's bad by any shot. So I'm going to give it a five. I think it's a fair way to go. Five on ten. You know, you might want to read up on Children of the Corn because we're going to go over that ten times in the next year. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew Goudreau, what about you, sir? Do better is all I'm going to say. That's my critical assessment of this movie. If this was a baseball game, this would be a baseline hit that results in a first base out where it's like you did the minimal that was required for this to warrant a swing, but you still struck out, still went out in your department. I'm so tired of these middling horror movies that have nothing new to offer. They play it safe. And honestly, I telegraphed everything that was going to happen in this movie. I'm not a genius for saying that. I think a lot of what's here are the tried and true cliches of jump scares and underwritten characters, plot threads that feel interwoven from other stories. And I'm kind of upset that this got a theatrical release, but Prey was reduced to a at-home only. 
I think they chose poorly. Can I send this to the depths of Stephen King hell? No, because we got 11 Children of the Corn movies to go and quite a few other less than stellar productions. Hell, Night Shift alone has some that I think are worse than this that we'll be getting to. But I also can't endorse it in any way. If you're looking for your PG-13 horror fix, this is the McDonald's Happy Meal of that. You'll get some sustenance, but you'll probably be shitting your brains out a couple hours later. And you'll never think about it again. This is a, it's a 4 on 10 for me. We got a 5 and a 4. As the King fan of this retrospective, I'm more on the side of Adam with this one. I think this is about, to me, it's on par with Smile that came out last year. I think Smile had some great moments. Smile was way overlong. I think, for the most part, it has some effective parts going for it. I think the director has some good jump scares going on here. And I think the older girl isn't too bad. Now, horror films in this day and age have gotten to be really well respected. In fact, if you want to hear me and Matt talk about that, we did a podcast for The Horror Returns about quote-unquote elevated horror, a term I absolutely cannot stand. What it explains is movies for people who love horror films that don't want to admit that they love horror films. And I think this is one that was made for people who love horror films. I think there's some decent stuff to be had here. Now, is King's story here? We have a little bit of King's story here, but that goes away pretty quick. And we're pretty much getting a quasi-sequel to that story. King has come out and endorsed this film. He really enjoys it. I can't say I really enjoy it, but I think I had a little bit of fun here. I'm going to go ahead and go with my best friend of 30 years, Adam Bunch, and give this a five. Now, is it worth going out of your way going to a theater on a Friday night? No, especially at a time when we have Spider-Verse and we have Indy coming out here pretty soon. We have a whole bunch of stuff coming up that you can skip this, wait for streaming, but it's not a bad way to spend an hour and a half. I think there are definitely some scares to be had here. So if it's really hot outside, you want to go sit in a cool theater for an hour and a half, check this out. But like Adam said, make sure it's a matinee. All right, that does it for the Boogeyman. Next week, we have, what, Transformers next week, Matt? Yeah. (laughs) Next week. Talk about a scary movie. (laughs) Transformers, at this point, it's what, seven? Yeah, it's seven after Bumblebee. So another week of release review. Adam, (laughs) what are you expecting when we review Transformers next week? You know what I'm going to hope for? I'm going to show the trailer to Alex, my youngest. Maybe he can get excited, and I'll take him along with me. He loves King Kong, Godzilla movies, so maybe I can get him excited for this as well. I'll say this. I think Bumblebee is the most fun I've had watching a Transformers movie. So being that this inexplicitly tells the Unicron story before the events of Michael Pace films, I don't know how you do that. I'm hoping that they do this one as well. I've never cared for the Beast and Transformers, the Beast Wars cartoon, even those toys were never my deal, so I could not care less that they're bringing the animals into it, but I like that they keep changing up the design so that you can more easily tell who's an Autobot, who's a Decepticon, but this thing looks more animated than any of them I've seen so far, and that's the part that kind of bugs me. It looks like we've gone away from looking like vehicles to looking like cartoons, and we'll see. I loved Bumblebee, I wish we were carrying down that road, but instead... Okay, here we go. Matt, as someone who literally suffered through that series when we did it a few years ago at the other place, are you looking forward to this new one at all? Well, Bumblebee was a nice surprise, I'll say that. And I'm gl- if this was another Michael Bay one, I would be have to be strapped down Clockwork Orange style in that chair in order to get through it, but I'm still not excited because I saw that trailer, and it just looks like the Michael Bay ones all over again. 
I don't know the difference between a animal transformer, basically anything that Adam talked about in the last minute. I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize Transformers was that deep, but I also think I have amnesia slash PTSD from all the stuff those Transformers movies threw at me that maybe I'm just blanking out and I've seen this shit before. I hope it offers me something good. I hope it's not a miserable experience, but I'm not, I wouldn't put my life on enjoying it. As for me, I had both good and bad times when we did Transformers those years ago. The trailers kind of had me intrigued, and the reason they had me intrigued is because I did not follow the Beast Wars. I did follow Transformers when I was a kid. I followed a lot of the stuff that was covered before when they made those movies, but this one, I have no idea what to expect. I'm not sure whether I'm taking the fiancé or not. We're going to have to discuss it, but it's something that I gotta say, I don't feel as much anticipation as when Bumblebee was coming out, but I'm kind of looking forward to it. I, I think I think we could have a surprise here. I have no idea who's directing it. I have no idea who wrote it. We'll talk about that next week when we get to it, but it's something that I'm, I'm intrigued. Let's put it that way. But speaking of being intrigued, we have more coming up after that. We do have The Flash, a lot of weaker release reviews, plus we just recorded, as we mentioned earlier, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's going to be a podcast I'm definitely going to recommend. That's a series I've been wanting to do forever. I'm glad we're finally getting to it. We've recorded the first show of it, and let me tell you, it's going to live up to every bit of expectations. I guarantee that. So look forward to that pretty soon as we get a week of release review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Boys, it's been fun doing this journey with you. Sorry you guys didn't have as good of a time with the Boogeyman, although Adam did. Adam had about as good of a time as I did. Yeah. But we're going to get some bigger budgets next week, and we're going to get some fighting robots. So there's something to look forward to, huh? (laughs) Until next week, when we review the new Transformers film, when we have a phobia or fear something, sometimes the best thing to do is to podcast about it. Thanks, boys. Boogie down. I promise you three things. You have your car, cling, you have the money, and of course, you have my wife. Listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. I think I'm crying. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Maybe I'll be better tomorrow. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Oh, sure. Sure, I remember. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Does a bear shit in the woods? <laughs> Edited by Garrett. Oh, that's bullshit. Voiceover by Adam. We'll make some time, goddammit. And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You think it's going to make a difference? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
So Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. We have a great deal to talk about, Mr. Billings. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. It makes her the main character, but at the expense of the father, who I think is in a more interesting place than she is. As far as the... Uh, what was the second part of your question? <laughs> what about the little girl? Oh, fucking Leia? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just... I can't blame her, but... I, I, I Stephen King needs to stop with these fucking precocious kids. And this older daughter, played by so Sophie? Sophie Thatcher. I keep wanting to say Sophie Turner. Um, she was actually in the Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, I feel like there is no more you can do with this setup. And for the record, while I did, we did see Evil Dead Rise, I don't know which movie is afflicted more by dumb white people syndrome more. Yeah, you're because right. Because the whole reason that movie <laughs> happens is because the sun breaks into the big Yes. Yeah. It's from the Necronomicon with no second guessing it. I can't wait to do that movie someday. <laughs> Not it. <laughs> well, we got somebody in mind for it. Don't worry, Adam. Yeah. No, well, you'll get it next year. That's yeah. <laughs> Transformers, at this point, it's what, seven? Yeah, it's seven after Bumblebee. So another week of release review. Adam? <laughs> Not it. <laughs> yes, you are, sir. You are on this one. Adam, wait, what, what do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I did not think I was doing this. Yes, yes, you are You are on Transformers. Sir, what are you expecting when we review Transformers next week? To be pissed that I'm in a theater watching Transformers. 